This is Michigan Crime Stories, and I'm Jessica Shepard. You've reached part four, the conclusion of our podcast series on Mark Latunsky and the murder of Kevin Bacon. If you haven't listened to the first three parts in this series, we suggest you go back and start from episode one. Before we dive into the finale, I offer a final warning. The topic discussed here and the details shared are disturbing in nature. We suggest you use discretion when making a decision to listen. How would you describe this community? Who lives here? Super, super nice people, just down to earth, um, non-judgmental, you know, um, the things I've heard about him. Like, I know he's related to people in the community, and he's a really smart man. Like, he worked as a chemist or something like that, and I guess he started acting a little off the wall, like, towards, like, with the last year before the incident with the Kevin Bacon earlier. Does pretty much everybody in town know about the Latonsky case? Is that oh, something? Oh, are you kidding? We all think he should have got needle. You mean the death penalty? Permanent. Well, they don't have that in Michigan. <laughs> Too bad. It solved a lot of these fucking guys running around with guns, found out you're going to get executed and you killed somebody. If he had gotten not guilty by insanity, he would, you'd probably would have ended up in the psychiatric facility for potentially life. Man, ain't part of him. He should never get out of jail. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, that's what... Uh, nuts. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like what you... You know, kill a dog that kills people. Don't kill a fucking human being anymore. So you don't you don't have much compassion for his mental illness. Fuck no. I don't know. I guess if that was the case, it'd be a different way to look at it. But if I was like Kevin, that Kevin Bacon's guy's parents or family, I wouldn't give a fuck if the guy had mental issues or not. Like I'd want him. Hey, that doesn't give you an excuse to kill somebody. I've lived in Michigan all but a few years of my life and have never visited, passed through, or even heard of Morris, spelled M-O-R-R-I-C-E, until I began investigating this story. The small farming community in southwestern Shiawassee County is where Mark Lotunsky grew up on a farm owned by his family. His father and now-deceased mother lived a few doors down from the house where Lotunsky killed Kevin Bacon. His father still owns but no longer lives at the property, and Lotunsky's brother lives around the corner. Head south a few miles from the Latunsky family estates, you'll cross Interstate 69, and a sign welcomes you to the village of Morris. There's a cluster of homes in a residential area comprised of just a few streets, flanked by a tiny business district that includes a feed store, country ranch family restaurant with a sign that has two cattle staring at one another, a liquor store, and a pizza shop. Most of the buildings are painted beige or covered in beige siding. Perhaps one of the most thriving businesses is the Morris Bar. The inside resembles most any run-of-the-mill dive bar. Family here, all one word, was the Wi-Fi password scrawled on a chalkboard. Country music radio station played over the speakers. Pretty much farming or mechanics. They work on cars or, you know, like industrial type stuff like that. The small businesses, like, they'll open, but they don't stay open very long. Like, yeah. there's a couple salons um, on the strip right now, but they've come and gone, you know what I mean? Uh, this bar's been here for... Years. Morris is a low-crime town, the bartender and patrons, including a GM retiree and a man who's curious if I've ever seen Surviving Christmas featuring Ben Affleck, tell me. They all know about the story of Mark Latunsky, 
and most know some of his relatives, but none in this town where everyone knows everyone personally know Mark Letunsky. I never even heard of the guy until it happened. They only know what they've read in the news or seen on social media. A man named Bob walks in. He's greeted by name. Did, Did you see his yes. ex-wife's Facebook? Emily? Is it Emily? I, I, I thought that was her name. I think so. The Facebook post? No, I didn't. What did she say? Can you pull it up? I, I don't, I was just looking for my phone. I, I guess I gotta run home and get it. Before Bob was able to run home for his phone, I found the Facebook post he was talking about. It was written by Mark Lutonsky's ex-wife on December 15th, the day her former husband, the father of her children, was sentenced to life in prison. The post features a picture of the family, Emily Lutonsky, Mark Lutonsky, their son, and three daughters. They're at Disney World and it's 2011, back when life seemed a little bit more normal for them. Mark is clean-cut, an average dad-looking type. He has short hair and a crisp white t-shirt tucked into his cargo shorts. Mark Lutonsky and his wife stand on opposite sides of someone dressed up in a Donald Duck costume. Donald's white-gloved hands rest on Mark Lutonsky's eldest son's shoulder. Mark's arm extends behind Donald Duck to his wife's back. She's holding their youngest daughter in her left arm and smiling. They look happy, but around this time is when Mark Lutonsky's mental illness first began taking hold. I already had Emily Lutonsky's address from court records. She only lives a baseball chuck away from the Morris Bar, so I left my card in the door of the baby blue-sided house on the corner lot with deflated Christmas decorations hung like drying laundry over the front porch railing. A life-size Grinch in a Santa suit leaned against the house. It was December. Nearly a week later, to my surprise, Emily contacted me. She invited me over for an interview. She wanted to talk about the man she once loved before mental illness took him away from her. A couple weeks later, I pulled into the 47-year-old mother's gravel driveway and walked into the seemingly happy chaos of her home. And then what are the, they all, what are everyone's names? Jasper. Uh, Willow, maybe, and then the big bird is Monty and the small one is Cairo. A large tropical bird, I think Monty, flaps his way from his cage to the kitchen counter near where one of Mark Latunsky's daughters is preparing a pizza for her siblings. We set up in the family room. Emily's toddler son, who she adopted along with his sister after Emily fostered them, hides under a blanket on the couch. As we sit down, she talks about what inspired her to write the Facebook post in the first place. I have not talked to anybody from the media, and I did not post anything online um, at all through the whole thing. Um, but I just got tired of the, of the hate and people you know, saying, he's faking it, he's faking it, he's not. <laughs> he's absolutely mentally ill, and it's not who he used to be. Then she reads the post. Today was the sentencing hearing for Mark Latunsky. He will spend the rest of his life in prison. Many of you know he's my ex-husband and the father of my children. I've been quiet through this whole ordeal, but it's time for me to speak. I'm tired of people saying he's faking his mental illness. I'm tired of the hate. He should absolutely pay for his actions, but he's also a human being and has four beautiful children who deserve better than callous comments about their father. I'll make this public if people would like to share. It's over. My heart is broken for the Bacon family broken for my children and broken for the person Mark was. I choose to remember the man he was in this picture before mental illness destroyed him. First, I want to say that I'm so sorry to the Bacon family for what happened to your son. No family should have to go through the heartache of what happened. 
Kevin's life mattered, and it was cut short too soon. Cut short by a man who most see as a monster, but I see as a broken man ravaged by the effects of an untreated mental illness that took complete control of his life. I was married to Mark for 12 years and am the mother to his four beautiful children. When you look at him, you see a man, or monster, capable of a crime so horrific it made national and world headlines. I remember a man who loved his children and was so proud when each were born. I remember a father who brought home so many trash bags full of shredded paper that it filled a room just for his children to play in. I remember a man who took his son to get fireworks every year because he knew that he loved them. I remember a man who broke out a van window when his two-year-old daughter locked herself in and he didn't want to take the time to rip for keys because it was hot outside. I remember a man who started traditions with his children that we continue today because my children remember and love the man he was. You may see a monster, but he was a son, a brother, a friend, a father, and a husband. He wasn't perfect, none of us are, and when mental illness took hold, none of those who loved him could help him and we watched helplessly as he spiraled farther and farther into madness and delusional thoughts and became a man none of us knew. He put me and my children through some hard times, but we forgive because we remember who he was. It breaks my heart to see what he has become, but I want everyone to know that his illness is real, not some story concocted. He outran the sentence he will face because of what he did. I know it's real because I watched helplessly as he got worse and worse and had to make the hard decision to walk away. The man Mark Latunsky is now is not the man he was. I hate the crime he committed, but I don't hate him. I forgive him because I remember who he was. He worked hard, loved his job, and loved his family. He was Mark Latunsky, son, brother, husband, friend, and father. My best friend and his best friend are married, and so they told him that they had the perfect person for him and told me the same thing and set us up on a date. We went to a Chinese restaurant. He was, he was just a, he was a little bit awkward, but he was always quiet and gentle and soft-spoken and, and just a nice guy. He looked very much the same as he looks now, a little less muscular. He didn't work out then like he does now, but he was very similar. His hair was a lot shorter. Emily was 27 and Mark was 33 when they met. It was the year 2000. He was raised in Morris. His mom was a school bus driver and stayed home with them as well. And he has a brother and a sister and they had a farm. They raised cattle and uh, hogs and his father raised crops and different things like that. After graduating high school as his class as valedictorian, Mark Latunsky attended Central Michigan University and later transferred to Iowa State University, where he got a master's degree in chemistry in 1995. He worked for, when I met him, he worked for a company called Flint Inc. and they made food packaging inks that were echo safe. We got engaged after about a year of dating and then married in 2001. The newlyweds stayed in Morris to start their family. Their first child, a son, was born in 2003. And our second was 16 months later in 2004. And then our third is 2007, and our fourth is 2010. His dad had a stroke when, he, when our first child was just a baby. And so that caused some conflict in the family as far as how to deal with his dad. And so that put a little bit of stress on him as well. But other than that, it was just the typical family life stuff. They took family vacations, visited zoos, and when time and babysitters allowed, Emily and Mark Latunsky enjoyed going to Broadway shows. The family also raised goats, chickens, ducks, and rabbits. 
Emily Latunsky had her own horses. The family often joined Mark Latunsky on work trips, usually to Kentucky, where there was a dinosaur park they had fun visiting. In about 2007, Mark quit Flint, Inc. and began working at American Chemical Technologies, a company that made things like heat-resistant lubricants for amusement park rides, Emily said. The house on Turrell Road uh, we bought together before we got married, and it needed a lot of work, so we gutted the inside, tore it right down to the studs, put a new basement under it, and then rebuilt it when he wasn't at work. He was working on the house. He could do anything he wanted to. I, I know he had a very high IQ. The first signs of any mental illness came a couple weeks after their fourth child was born in May of 2010. When our youngest child was two weeks old, he started coming up with some delusional thoughts and some things that I thought he needed to get taken care of. And so I convinced him to check himself into the hospital. When he first started showing signs of the schizophrenia, he um, believed that he wasn't actually his mother's son, but that he was his mother's brother. And they were hiding that from him because there was some sort of family inheritance that he was going to inherit, but he had to do all the right things. He had to say all the right things. He believed that there was people watching him to make sure he did that and to make sure he was doing what he was supposed to do before he could get that inheritance. Mark Lutusky spent about a week in the hospital, but like many mentally ill people, didn't believe there was anything wrong with him. He soon quit taking his medication. What scared Emily most is when Mark accused her of being in on the delusional conspiracy. He said, I know that you're with the group of people who are watching me, who are paid to watch me, and it's okay, I understand why. And I said, why, why do you think people are paid to watch you? And he said, well, it's their job. Mark Lutusky espoused some of those same delusions nearly 10 years later while talking to police the night he killed Kevin Bacon. Nearly a year went by after the first hospitalization. He was worse when he checked in the second time. And he, he did the same thing where he would go in. He would tell them pretty much everything they needed to hear to let him out. And he would stay on the medicine for a day or two. Frustrated, Emily started counting Mark's pills. When he found that out, it only made him more paranoid and suspicious of her. He had admitted that he was cheating on me with men at that same time. Uh, and so at that point, I told him I would stay and we would try to work on things. But we had separate bedrooms. Prior to the admission, Emily Latusky had no clue her husband was gay. I found a picture on the computer once of a naked man, and I asked him about it. I said, what in the world is this? And he said, oh, I just wanted to make sure I measured up and that you were happy with me. And I was like, you're fine. Why would you think that? Under the stress of the cheating and the mental illness, the marriage crumbled in 2013. Mark Latusky began making unfounded neglect reports to Child Protective Services, and Emily moved to her parents' home. I didn't want my kids to get taken away and to have to go through that trauma because of the delusions that he was having. One curious aspect of Mark Latunsky's mental illness is that he was able to continue functioning and keep a high-level job for so long. Marianne Huff, who operates a mental health clinic in Holland, Michigan, and is the president and CEO for the Mental Health Association in Michigan, said this is possible when patients take their medication. But therein lies the problem. They clearly have severe mental illness, but they don't understand or perceive their illness. Usually you see it in people with schizophrenia or particularly bipolar one disorder. Mark Latunsky, at least according to any public records I've reviewed, has never acknowledged having mental illness. He rejected his only viable criminal defense, not guilty by reason of insanity, and ordered his attorney not to reference his mental health history during his degree hearing. Mark Latunsky, however, did go through the motions at times. When the problems first arose in his early to mid-30s, he did go to treatment upon his wife's request. And when his job was later on the line, he worked with his employer. I spoke to a longtime American Chemical Technologies co-worker of Mark Latunsky's. They asked not to be recorded or identified, 
But son Mark began showing signs of mental illness while at work in about 2012 or 2013. He gave his boss permission to talk to his doctors, who ensured them Mark would be fine, contingent on him taking his medication. But about once per year, he'd stop taking medication and bottom out, get treatment, get back on meds, and return to work as usual. He had a high-level job and oversaw other employees. His co-worker said, quote, The dude is like genius, insanely smart, unquote. But Latowski felt the medications dulled his mind. His boss was amazing, gave him so many chances, of so patient with him. Each time Latowski fell off the medication wagon, his episodes seemed increasingly severe, and it was happening more frequently. In February 2019, shortly before he began working as an escort of sorts, Mark Latowski was fired for poor job performance. The company was spending more time trying to fix Mark than getting work done. While Latowski's first involuntary psychiatric committal happened in 2012, his first trouble with the law came in 2013, when he was charged with kidnapping his own children. Knowing Mark Latunsky's mental state, Emily Latunsky fought for supervised visits, but the court denied her request and granted Mark Latunsky custody every other weekend, on Wednesdays, and for two weeks in the summer. Coincidentally, Mark Latunsky was represented in his divorce and custody matters by attorney Matthew Stewart, who would go on to become the judge who sentenced Latunsky to life in prison. Back in August of 2013, Mark Latunsky took his kids to Splash Village in Dundee, Michigan, during one of those court-mandated visits, and then refused to return them. Police were called by Emily Latunsky, and they located and arrested Mark Latunsky at the hotel they were staying at. The State Forensic Center found that Mark Latunsky was incompetent to stand trial on those charges in 2013. He was later found competent to stand trial in 2014, and the case was reopened in 2015, but later dismissed by prosecutors. The prosecutor told me it had just been a long time, and he said, we're not going to follow through with, the, with charging him with anything. He's not mentally sound, and so it's just been too long. Uh, we're just not going to do anything about it. We went to court, and... He, his visitation was taken away, but he was allowed supervised visits. And I set those up, and he, he made it to one, I think, and then decided he didn't like being supervised. And then went four years, basically, without seeing them. By now, Mark Latunsky's delusions were so severe that he began questioning the legitimacy of some of the most beloved people in his life, his children. He didn't believe that all the kids were his. He didn't believe any of them were his, actually. Mark Latunsky married Jamie Arnold in 2015, and Emily Latunsky suspects he pressured Mark Latunsky to reunite with his children. Mark Latunsky again filed for custody and requested counseling with his wife. They were useless. I don't think they, they didn't solve anything. It was basically him accusing me of all kinds of different things, giving reasons why he didn't trust me, because he, he thought I poisoned as well, and he thought my brother poisoned as well. But Mark Latunsky did regain unsupervised visitation rights with his children during this time. He would make them go to the gym. He and Jamie were, would go to the gym, and he'd make the kids go, and they didn't like going because they would just sit there while he and Jamie worked out. At that point, he didn't really do much with them. He just, they just hung out at the house and then came back home. Based on Mark Latunsky's April 2020 competency review, he spent time in treatment facilities in May of 2010, May of 2012, June of 2012, and September of 2013. His longest stint of inpatient treatment was about two weeks. In Michigan, there is a maximum 72-hour hold for psychiatric patients, unless they voluntarily sign themselves in for longer, or someone, usually a doctor or family member, petition for commitment and a probate court judge agrees. That usually requires the person to be violent, threatening, or suicidal. Mark was none of those things. 
at least until men began escaping from his home and reporting it to police in October 2019. In January of 2019, a month before he was fired, Lutunsky stopped seeing his children and later sent Emily Lutunsky a long email, again denying he was their father. Mark Lutunsky was arrested and jailed for a short time for non-payment of child support in July of 2019 and again in December 2019, before the killing of Kevin Bacon. Both times, his booking records indicate he did not appear to have psychiatric problems. Emily Lutunsky in December of 2019 also sought a court hearing to have her ex-husband's parenting rights officially terminated. I told my lawyer that day, I said, you know, I've never been afraid of Mark ever. But today in court, I was, he made me nervous because I, the way he looked at me, I think he would have hurt me if he could have. And uh, he just, you could just, he was angry at me. And so I knew he wasn't doing well at the beginning of December. Just a few weeks later, her former husband and the father of her children was behind bars, accused of killing and eating a portion of Kevin Bacon. People she didn't know started harassing her on Facebook. But the community of Morris stood behind her and her children, she says. Emily Lutuski said her children are resilient and moved on with life as normally as possible. Her son coped by using blunt humor, at times referring to his dad as the kilted killer. My son didn't want to wear his varsity jacket with his last name on it at a college event because it has the last name on it. And he, you know, and, and my kids have said several times that they didn't want to wear things with their last name on it because of it, because they're afraid of people recognizing the last name. It was nerve wracking for Emily Latunsky as the court trial slowly dragged out and new lurid details emerged every few months in the media. She braced for the impact each new tidbit would have on her children. She told her children the destruction caused by mental illness created the man they saw in the news. Their father was someplace else. I've told them all along that is the cause of all of it and that this is not who their dad was. The person he was then would be horrified at the person he is now. Absolutely. And that I, I always made sure that they understand that it's okay to still love him. It's okay to love the person he was because that's who they knew, it was, it was their dad. Emily Lutunsky feels the news coverage was sensationalized and unproductive. It looked at the gruesome details, but not the underlying cause, mental illness, or how to help families struggling to get mental health help for their loved ones. I think it's really frustrating. When the people around him who loved him knew he wasn't doing okay, we couldn't force him to get help. And I understand that people have rights, but at some point there's gotta be a way to get people the help they need even if they don't want it. There was nothing we could do. We couldn't force him to stay on medication. We couldn't force him to check himself into the hospital. And that's why a lot of mentally ill people end up homeless because they've exhausted all of the people who love them. I don't think there's a lot of work being done to figure out how to combat mental illness. I think there's a lot of other issues that they're worried about, but I don't believe mental illness is, is one of them. Blue eyes peek from behind randomly strewn strands of brown hair. They look scared, evil, possibly medicated. It depends on your perspective. A wild beard splays off his chin, and a gray cinder black wall silhouettes his head. This is the most recent photo of Mark Latunsky, posted on the Michigan Department of Corrections website. The six-foot-tall, 185-pound, 53-year-old, level 4 inmate with several aliases is jailed at Gus Harrison Correctional Facility. It's one of the Michigan prisons with extra psychiatric resources. The destination of Mark Lutonsky's story is rare, but the path that leads there isn't. According to the Centers for Disease Control, one in 25 Americans lives with serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression. One of the most effective ways to stop psychosis or mania is medication. 
which has come a long way from the lobotomy and Thorazine, but is still sorely lacking. They may stop delusions, but also cause weight gain, diabetes, bladder, kidney, or liver damage. Not to mention, says Marianne Huff of the Mental Health Association in Michigan. People will complain that the medications do dampen their emotions, make them tired, feel less like they want to engage with other people and things like that. But unfortunately, as you said, I mean, these even these newer drugs have some pretty insidious side effects. And the hard part about it, it's not like when somebody has diabetes where they, if they need insulin, they can, you know, take a glucometer, they can get a blood glucose reading and determine with their doctor's help how much insulin to take. With these drugs, we don't have that ability to be that exacting. And frankly, the other issue is some people go through multiple trials of drugs before something is found that might actually work. People aren't always sure they want to deal with it. It becomes a choice between do I maybe, do I live as long or do I maybe take the medication and maybe die sooner? Even a reasonable sane person might have reservations about taking medication with so much downside. Add the element of confused or delusional thinking and it becomes even more difficult for the mentally ill person to justify. Because Mark Letusky so often stopped taking his medication, his ex-wife said he at one point was prescribed an antipsychotic injection. Those can be effective for up to three months per dose. Huff recommends being gentle with friends or loved ones who appear to be exhibiting signs of mental illness. Don't challenge the delusions, she said. It will only cause an argument and cause more stress for them, but all the while encourage them to seek medical assistance. Typically what you might hear is you have the problem. You, the person asking me to get help, you have the problem. I don't have a problem. I'm perfectly fine, you know? And so if that happens... And the person clearly, if it's what we look at, because we have a set of laws in Michigan called the Michigan Mental Health Code. Uh, Act 258 of 1974 is amended. Huff is talking about the law that allows the probate court to involuntarily commit someone. If you are so mentally ill that you can't take care of your basic needs, food, clothes, shelter, are threatening others, violent or suicidal, you may qualify for inpatient committal. But someone like Mark Latonsky didn't fit that criteria. He had a nice house, a great job, wasn't suicidal or violent for most of his illness. How do you help someone like Latunsky get mental health treatment when they don't think they need it? In most cases, you don't, hence the problem. That's where the civil rights aspect comes into this. That's why the law has, we have a civil commitment process where, you know, we can't just take people and drop them off at the hospital and say, oh, they're causing problems, put them in and they go in. But, but the bottom line is if you have a serious mental health condition, yet you're functioning in the borderland, there's not a lot of options family have. No, they really, they really don't. When you hear the alarming stats about the prevalence of mental illness in criminals, it seems natural that mental health and law enforcement would work together more efficiently on the issue. And there have been steps in that direction, especially with, for instance, mental health and social workers joining police officers in the field. Police maintain they had no criminal recourse when the two men escaped Latunsky's house in October and November before the killing of Kevin Bacon, which may be true, but were there mental health options? Could Latunsky have been referred for a mental health check or forced by the probate court to be evaluated and then, maybe, treated? Sergeant James Moore with the state police, the detective who saw Kevin's body hanging in Mark Latunsky's basement and heard about his plans to eat Kevin, wouldn't comment on whether or not he believed Latunsky suffers from mental illness. He does seem to doubt the delusions, 
some that Litovsky has talked about since at least 2010. He came across overall pretty articulate, uh, very detailed, you know, and again, with him going off on some of those tangents, I just think he would find time. Uh, he probably had come up with a story as to what he was going to tell us, and he was sticking to that story. I also asked Shiawassee County Prosecutor Scott Kerner about the synergy between law enforcement and mental health. I mean, do you think those two units, like you said, you work in a mental health court, so there is some crossover. I mean, are things working optimally now between mental health and criminal justice? Or where do you see improvements that need to be made? Um, I guess I won't have no comment on that. All right. And that's part of the problem, says Sanford Shulman, a Detroit defense attorney who's defended many mentally ill defendants, including Marquise Cromer, who at 21 years old in 2016 killed a Detroit police officer and shot two others during a psychotic rampage. He later commit suicide in prison after a life of inadequate mental health treatment. Now, our community actually does not want to talk about it. It starts long before Cromer or this cannibal or this cannibal are sitting in that chair next to me. And I just always wondered who, who had time, who knew, and what, and what could we have done differently. All I'm saying is that let's just minimize it like the drunk driving episodes where we're not going to get them all. But if we have, you know, a series of checkpoints, we're going to do our best to minimize it and get it early and um, make it, you know, so that less and less of these stories come out. That's one of the most disheartening aspects of Latunsky's case. Despite having resources and money, a family who supported him and encouraged treatment early on, inpatient stints at psychiatric hospitals, doctors who regularly saw him for various reasons, multiple interactions with courts, police, probate judges, and mental health professionals, none of those checkpoints were enough. Now Christmas for our family will never mean the same to us, thanks to you taking our son and brother away from us. Kevin will never get to make any life choices that parents get to feel proud of, and even though we finally will get justice for Kevin, it still, still doesn't feel like enough, and you still get to live and do things because a pig like you that can do what you did to our own son can never have remorse in his body. You took our son and my daughter's brother, but you can't take our memories that will be held so closely to our hearts. Losing Kevin will always be with me because I want to keep his life story alive, share my favorite memories of him, and help others know about the dangers of meeting people online. Kevin's life was cut way too short, but his memory and generosity will leave an impact on the people he knew and loved throughout his 25 years of life on Losing a child is like losing a piece of yourself. After your children are born, you spend years nurturing and teaching them on how to be a good person. With Kevin, we had that taken away from us too early just when he was about to become the man he was going to be. For the rest of my days, I will wonder what is with Kevin now. I love you, son. Those are portions of victim impact statements written by Kevin's mother, sister, and father that were read at Mark Latunsky's sentencing hearing. Kevin Bacon's memory, for many, will unfortunately always be tainted by the horror movie-like details that surrounded his death. The grinder hookup that ended with him being killed and cannibalized in a secret room, alone, on Christmas Eve, by a mentally ill man wearing a leather kilt. There's no avoiding that. But there are opportunities for everyone, police, politicians, judges, medical professionals, and every person alive who interacts with someone suffering from or exhibiting signs of mental illness to take a little more time and care to try and get them help or let someone else know. 
Kevin's life was a lot more beautiful and complex than what has been reduced to in the public eye. And those truths, those feelings, those memories are how Kevin's mother, sister, father, and friends will remember him. They'll cherish different sorts of memories. At Kevin's vigil on January 3rd, 2020, the night after his funeral, a reporter asked Carl Bacon what his last words were to his son as he laid him to rest. Goodbye, Kevin's father said. His voice quivered as he continued. My only thought was just going back the day I, you know, he was born. It's the only thing I could think of. I holding him in my hands. I mean, I was the second person to hold him after his mother, and just holding him in my hands, the only thing I could think of. And no, that's no longer. That's all from Gus and for Michigan Crime Stories for now. If you need assistance regarding mental health treatment for yourself or a loved one, you can reach the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-622-HELP or contact your local community mental health authority. Even though we are done with this story, stay subscribed to Michigan Crime Stories wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll be alerted when we release new episodes. Until then, you can always find the latest Michigan news at MLive.com. And if you appreciate the hard work of Michigan journalists like Gus, consider becoming an MLive subscriber. Thanks for listening to Michigan Crime Stories.